I still say the vast majority of of non-Chinese people that I met at least couldn't speak Chinese. So the people who did know Chinese, they maybe were more valuable. Sometimes it may have been a waste of time to go to university to spend four or five years to learn the language when you could be in China every single day learning the language through life, which is another aspect of anthropology. We've been educated that we need to learn by going to school, but we forget that a lot of people learn just through life. If you learn the language of another person and you show that you're interested in that language, the other person is going to respect you a lot more. Hello, Clever Hibbers Trip, and we're back with Season 7. Today, we're doing Episode 2 with Christian Manley. He's a British-American cinephile. What is a cinephile? A cinephile is just a person who loves Chinese history and Chinese culture. So let's get into how did that even happen. First of all, Christian, thank you for being here with us today. But please tell us the story you just told me about your Chinese name. It was a very interesting backstory. Sure. So... Like you introduced, uh, I'm a British American, born in the UK, but grew up in America, as you could tell by my accent. I still say water, not wada. One other difference is that my name, Christian, is pronounced like Christian in America, but all my cousins in, in England, they pronounce the tian at the end of Christian as tian, so it sounds like Christian. In Chinese, there's a character for sky, or sometimes God, which is Tian. If you watch uh, Dragon Ball Z, there's a character called Tian, which is the same character. So uh, my Chinese name is Suma Tian because it's the ending sounds like my British name, British pronunciation. But uh, there's more to that meaning. There's a very famous historian called Suma Tian, the first historian, or one of the first historians in China, which means one of the first historians ever. His name is Suma Tian which rhymes with Suma Tian, and I like history, so that's why I chose myself that name. When I was living in China and I'd order food or get a delivery, the delivery people would not expect to find a foreigner or a white person like me have a name like Suma Tian. They'll say, oh, your, your name is, is, do you know what it means? I'm like, yeah, I do know what it means. What I found is having a name that shows that you kind of understand the culture is, is a way of gaining some respect. Yeah, it's a good conversation starter, too. I know in my husband's language, my name, Gabby, is like a very nice, warm blanket. I guess it kind of matches my personality. But it was a good <laughs> conversation starter. <laughs> you, you, you start to think about words like that as you get older, the meaning of, of stuff. Which one of your parents is the Brit? They're both English, actually. And then my parents came over here when I was six months old. So, yeah, both my parents are English. All my family lives in England still, besides my mom, dad, and sister. I should have got citizenship when I was seven years old, but because I went to the university back in the UK, the time that you're supposed to stay here to apply for citizenship restarted. So hopefully in a year's time, I can apply for citizenship again. As you can tell by my voice, I have an American accent. Most people, even a lot of my friends don't know that I, um, I'm just a green card holder. Most of the time, people understand what I'm saying, but there's one story. One time I went to McDonald's when I was 15 or something, and I went to the drive-thru, and uh, I asked for water, and the person on the intercom said, huh? And I said, can I have some water? And they said, sir, you, you need to buy something for us to give you change. And then I realized that they thought I was saying quarter, 
like the money, not war, not water. So then I changed my phrasing. I said, oh, sorry, can I have some water? And I said, oh, yeah, why didn't you tell us in the first place? So, so. <laughs> that doesn't happen that often. Probably it's only happened maybe three or four times in my whole life. But uh, that one scenario was kind of stuck with me because I just found it hilarious that uh, water and quarter sounds so similar. Yeah, man, it's crazy. So then how did you end up in Shanghai in 2013? I guess being British American, going back to visit my relatives every once in a while as a kid really resonated with me, made me realize that there's different cultures, different countries out there. You know, England sounds a little different, but the culture is generally quite similar to American culture, at least on the face of it. When you actually live there, you realize there are subtle differences. That background made me interested in other countries. And originally I wanted to go to, to India, actually. Growing up Christian, I was also interested in religions and I, I found some Hindu books and, and Buddhist books that I really loved and I wanted to go to India during college for a volunteering experience. But I ended up not going to that because I was still pretty young and no adult was going with us. So I was persuaded to go somewhere else. So instead, I got an internship in China in 2013. That's how it all began. It wasn't just the spur of the moment thing. I grew up with a friend. His mom was from Taiwan. His dad was from Taiwan. And I'd go over there. My friend was American, but his parents had come from Taiwan. There was a Buddhist statue in the house. They used chopsticks. When I went there, uh, the food that we ate was always interesting to me. So that was definitely an experience from a young age that added to my interest in learning about foreign cultures and eventually interest in going to, to China. Why did you decide to extend it past the internship? There's usually people go, they spend maybe six months a year and like, well, that was interesting. And then they go back to what they were doing. It was the sense of wonder that I got the first couple weeks, that two months in, in Shanghai that summer. You know, the first day was really scary. You get there, you get to the hotel and the internet's different. You can't use the same apps. So I couldn't use Google. So I had to figure out another way to navigate around the city. So that was a little scary at first because I couldn't read any of the signs. Back in 2013, there wasn't as much English on the street as there were, was a couple years later when I return, returned. I wanted to go back because the sense of adventure, once I figured out how to survive in a, a totally different place, it was a nice challenge. And I, I found myself becoming a, a better person the more challenges that I was able to overcome living in a foreign country. It helped me learn about humans just in general, but also helped me learn about myself. Again, one of the reasons that I loved going back to the UK was it was different, but the same. And when you're kind of in those environments, it kind of helps you learn that there's different ways of living, not just in, in general, but how you as a person should be living. And then it just so happened a year later, I, I saw a master's program in London at the London School of Economics on, on Chinese anthropology. So I decided to go for that. Apology means the study of and anthro means humans. So put it together, it's the study of humans. Humans in different parts of the world, they have different his histories and they have different ways of doing things. A good example for us is why do we use forks and knives and why do people in China and, and Korea and Japan use chopsticks? But it goes deeper than that. There's things that we do every day that we take for granted that we think every human does, but it's not always like that. One of my professors, he told me that he went to rural China and he was amazed that some of the, the farmers there 
who had never grown up with plastic, you know, you buy Oreos from the store and the Oreos come in a little plastic container. We become used to, to that and we throw that in the garbage. We're used to the concept of a garbage, but someone had to invent a garbage can. So people in some cultures who didn't grow up with that in the beginning, they don't know what do I do with this plastic wrapper. So my professor told me they were just throwing it in the river. Now to us, we think, why would they do that? They will be destroying the environment. But unless you've been told, you've been taught that this destroys the environment, how are they to know? Because maybe to them, a piece of plastic is the same as a piece of wood, but someone has to be taught that difference. Hopefully that explains what anthropology is. Yeah, that's a very good explanation. So you did your master's in Chinese anthropology. How did you end up back in China after it? What were you doing? First, I just wanted to go back to, to China for a year to teach English because I'd been in university for five years. I wanted a break. But I also felt like I'd, I'd read a lot about China in, my, in university, but I hadn't actually experienced it fully. And I was really didn't want to become just a professor who reads about some foreign place in a book. That's why I went back. When I'd started teaching, I didn't realize that it was actually not a bad job at the age of 22. You got a free apartment. The wage was pretty decent, at least in terms of China. When you get a free apartment in China, it's a good way to save some money and have a real experience with normal people, not just some people in a book that you read about. I really enjoyed that. So I stayed another three years, just kept teaching. But then after learning Chinese, I got into the video game industry as a translator and a story writer and doing lots of other things for the gaming companies. Yeah, I want to get into that because it seems that the Asian video production studios are taking over the market. One concern, which is, I'm not saying it's right, but one concern that I hear a lot is people say, what about the security of these games? They're thinking maybe there's some malware or something underneath. Having worked in the industry, how do you help people to just chill? I definitely think everybody should have some good old-fashioned one hour a day of video games. Don't play video games too much. When I was a kid, my parents said, you have one hour of video games and one hour of, of television or computer. So I still think every parent should follow those rules. In terms of malware, there's definitely some mobile games out there which I wouldn't recommend playing if the title of the game is kind of weird. If you play PlayStation or Steam on the computer and you just buy a game for anywhere from $5 to $60, Usually that's the game that you buy. You don't need to spend any more money, but a lot of these mobile games have a gambling aspect to it. They're free, but in order to get better at the game, to level up your character or to be able to compete with some of the other players, you need to spend money. And sometimes the amount of money that you need to spend is, is crazy. Parents should be aware of that. Kids should be aware that if they're using their parents' money to be spending $5,000 on a character in the game, they maybe they should ask their parents first, uh, at least. Me personally, when I've downloaded these games, I haven't had any issues on my phone in terms of, of malware. Yeah, there's a good point with the pay-to-play. I fell for that. I had a really good game. Thankfully, I, I stuck myself there after I'd spent a little bit under $100. And I was like, wait, this is supposed to be free. What have I been doing? <laughs> yeah. So... That is a very good point. Free in quotation mark. When 
people think of the gaming industry, they usually think of the programmers, but you were working more with the narrative design. Those are also growing parts of the industry. Could you explain some of the differences of those facets of the industry? Because not everybody's a programmer. One of the privileges of, of being non-Chinese in China at the time when I was there was that sometimes you'd be one of the few native English speakers or, or non-Chinese in the company. When I joined my first gaming company, I was the first native English speaker. And even then, there were maybe three people from Turkey and two people from Russia. And then after I joined Spanish, Italians, and other Americans, other British people, we'd still only be maybe a few foreigners, not even 1% of the company. So I signed up for localization, which means translation. Since we were the only people who had lived in America or lived in the United Kingdom, or at least were native English speakers, we had to do other jobs besides just translation. It, it, it kind of became a role where we, our entire job was helping the company understand how to do business in the foreign country. So how did this play out? Sometimes the customer service, the people in the company who have to respond to players, They'd come to us with questions. How do I respond to this player? What does this player mean? This player is really angry at me. How do I calm them down? We'd have to give presentations sometimes on how to communicate with a foreign person from a Chinese person's point of view. Most people in China, even though they might be the most Christian country in a couple of years, at least in terms of number of people, most people in China have never gone to church, never gone to a mosque, never gone to a temple. This gets back to the anthropology thing. That's where my background came into play, where I would understand that these people are coming from a different point of view than me. And how do I explain things to them that they understand the customer? So not coming from religious background, sometimes with the story writing or the, the events, games have events every week, like a Christmas event or Thanksgiving event. I'd have to look over the event or the story and make sure there wasn't anything religious that was going to hurt some of the players' feelings. To a Chinese person in the company, they didn't understand why is it okay to put some religious things in like a Christmas tree, but I can't put other things. So that was kind of the stuff I had to do, helping with the marketing, make sure that again, the commercials were something that wouldn't offend the players. Something that would be a good commercial in China might not be a good commercial in, in America or the UK. I found that working in a gaming company, my masters learning about differences between Chinese culture and, and other cultures was very useful in, in helping gaming companies navigate how to do business in another country. They say everything you learn will help you somehow. In this case, it was very direct. That's amazing. Most people who move to another country, maybe they even are on the other extreme where they work for an international company and they just know how to say, hi, how are you in the language of the country. But you decided to get certified in Chinese up to an intermediate level. So for those of you who are studying Chinese, it's HSK4. I'm not sure what level that is because Asian languages have a different scale than European certification. So could you explain, first off, what's the difference between being certified in a European language versus an Asian language? And then we'll go from there. If you're in America, most people are going to be learning Spanish. If you're in England, most people are going to be studying French. Why do they do that? Because France is next to England and Mexico and South America is next to, to America. When I was in China, there weren't many people who learned Chinese. People in the country who only knew how to say hello. Maybe they know how to say noodles or rice or order things on a menu by saying this. 
but I still say the vast majority of of non-Chinese people that I met at least couldn't speak Chinese. So the people who did know Chinese, they maybe were more valuable because there are less people learning Chinese. Sometimes it may have been a waste of time to go to university to spend four or five years to learn the language when you could be in China every single day learning the language through life, which is another aspect of anthropology. We've been educated that we need to learn by going to school, but we forget that a lot of people learn just through life. If you learn the language of another person and, and you show that you're interested in that language, the other person is going to respect you a lot more. I wholeheartedly agree with that. If you use a translator or you're just learning the basics of a language, you can communicate. But if you dive deep like you have into Chinese where you're understanding the culture, you know all of these historical nuances and you can have an actual conversation, you go beyond communication to connecting. Yeah, exactly. Good point, because cultures have different ways of communicating things, even between different parts of America. I was living in the Midwest and people kept saying, oh, I can tell you're from New Jersey because you just say it how it is. You're very blunt. I lived in the UK. I lived in China. No one had ever told me that. Growing up with British parents, I, I, I was taught certain ways of doing things that I still am realizing are more British or at least English ways of having conversations. With Chinese people, sometimes they'll be very nice to you out of a sense of respect. If you're just using a translator, you might not sometimes understand some of the cultural aspects. In Chinese, there's characters that you could put at the end of your sentences to lessen the tone of the sentence. In English, we don't have these. I could say, go get me a glass of water. I can say that as, go get me a glass of water. Or I could say, go get me a glass of water. The tone is different. But in, in Chinese, they add a character to the end of the sentence to make sure that they, the other person knows that you're asking them politely. And if we just use a translator, English translation of that sentence is not going to include that character. It's not going to say, go get me a glass of water, parentheses, polite. So if a Chinese person doesn't understand how an English speaking person knows how to conduct a conversation in a polite way, it's going to come across impolite from the English person's point of view, the same way, the other way around too. There's the ways that Chinese people conduct their conversations that maybe an English speaking person doesn't understand either. And if you don't understand those nuances, sometimes it can lead to some issues. Yeah, they have that also with my husband's language where they add like an extra L sound when they want to say something politely. They have six different ways to say you based on if that person is older than you or has a higher position than you. We also like to watch Korean shows and they're always talking about, you need to dress me correctly. I'm older than you. So a lot of other languages have those honorifics, but in English, everybody's like you. But again, that's why anthropology is important. In, in America, we have many diverse cultures who came over here. All these different cultures had different ways of communicating with each other. And that's affected our way of speaking in ways that we don't realize. Our language is always changing. Yeah, my favorite book about anthropology right now is The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. And I didn't realize it, but what she said, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. American English is probably the most literal English because it's a country of immigrants. So we all have to be very explicit. Not explicit is using bad words, but very specific in what we are trying to say. Since we're all from different places. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. Yeah, whereas the little bit that I know about Asian cultures, with Asian cultures, they had isolation in some cases for hundreds of years. So as you mentioned before, idioms or even things that they say are implied. In Japanese, they call it reading the air. In English, we would say read the room. 
where someone says something, but you have to be able to understand the meaning behind comment that they made. Even within these countries, for instance, there's a city called Wenzhou, which is uh, in the mountains. Every city traditionally had its own version of Chinese. Somebody from a, one city could not understand somebody from another city. They could read the same language, but they couldn't understand each other. But Wenzhou is the hardest. And like you said, maybe because it was separated by the mountains, that's why that is so difficult. Yeah, even culturally, like people say people from Beijing are more polite. It's more rule-based society. Or people say in, in Shanghai, women run the relationships. All the women control the money. They control what they're going to go eat for the week. The men have to cook. So even within China, even within Asia, there's drastic differences. In Japan, people say similar thing between Osaka, which is in the south, and Tokyo. Osakans, I've heard, are, are way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard. I've been making more friends with Japanese people and I've, I've noticed, yeah, they say people in Tokyo, because it's more people and more competitive people in Tokyo, they dress more, not professional, they care more about the way they dress while people in Osaka are a little bit more, I'll just dress how I feel like dressing today. Even now that I've been doing the show, I've interviewed a few Hispanics from the West Coast and I grew up with Hispanics from the East Coast and they speak differently about certain things. For example, someone who is white Latinos on the East Coast would actually just call them white. Midwest, they kind of get into Caucasian. But then once you get to the Southwest, they're called Anglo. There's a different usage there. Then going again from the West side, they refer to themselves as Latin. But on the East Coast, they call themselves Latino. Even among Spanish speakers, it's different. I guess maybe because the West Coast is, is more... Mexican dominated and the East Coast is more Caribbean, Puerto Rican, Dominican, maybe El Salvador dominated. That might be some of the differences there. So everybody has their own slang in the different regions. I was surprised that my cousins, my cousins in England have always used the word use, which is the plural of you. And they'd always make fun of me and my sister for saying you guys, but they'd say use. As I traveled around America, I made more American friends from different parts of the country besides New Jersey. In New York, I was surprised that there are actually people in America somewhere who use use, not y'all. You don't really realize it until you've actually experienced it yourself. Then you become obsessed with it and the whole world becomes this one big puzzle. Yeah, who knows? Maybe your Chinese skills will bring you into some work in Latin America or Africa. There's been a lot of movement of Chinese companies investing in those areas lately. For those who are listening that might want to work with you, whether it's in the localization or bringing you to... Be a consultant in one of these countries. Where can we find you? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn is, is the best place for now. Christian Manley, which I guess is going to be in the description of this podcast episode. If Chinese, it's Sima Tian in traditional Chinese, not simplified Chinese. For those of you who are thinking, well, this guy is pretty interesting. You don't even know the half of it. On LinkedIn, Christian has themed posts that he makes on every day of the week. It's a different topic. Sometimes it's talking about why globalization is still a thing or talking about different western world versus asian culture specifics so if you're looking to geek out and learn more about the eastern side of the world it's a good source thank you for having me on today and uh hopefully people learn something and hopefully more people get interested in chinese and definitely remember sometimes taking as robert frost said the, the road less traveled is a good path it doesn't need to be chinese don't focus on just the importance in terms of can i get a job Maybe make it a hobby to learn the language because you never know what type of friends you can make. And like I said, language is more about creating respect.
than anything else. That's a great way to end this. I hope that this episode will help you to think about what people are actually like, because unfortunately in American media, we tend to vilify a lot of different cultures. Thank you so much for staying to the end. Rethink your prejudice. This is Gabby V for Clever Hybrids signing off, and we'll see you in the next one.